Just a quick note that an earlier version of this episode incorrectly said that Linda Diaz won the 2021 Tiny Desk Contest. She won in 2020. The day we said goodbye, I saw a red balloon floating through the sky. I was afraid of what it could do. The ocean's that voice, Felix, gets me. Oh, I got chills every single time. Well, it's great that more people know that voice. That is Alisa Amador. She is the winner of this year's Tiny Desk Contest, which was held earlier this year. And she came into the Tiny Desk and went on a tour, multiple city tour, as a result of winning. And her profile just increased, just blew up. I feel like there's almost something distinctly Latino about the Tiny Desk. I think music for our community is the thing, right? And it's how we build community. It's how we feel together. And I mean, nothing describes the Tiny Desk better than that. When you think about all of the Latino musicians who have come from various parts of the Spanish-speaking world to perform behind the desk, they all have that in common. It's like one little single space that everybody has in common that is part of the community, part of our community, part of their community. I, I don't know if you feel this, Felix, but being able to actually be at the tiny desk, like there is always that. It's like vibes on 100 every single time. Like everyone is just so excited to be together. It's like instant best friendship. We all are right with each other. We get each other. It's really a beautiful thing. No doubt. You're absolutely right. I've been doing this for a while and it happens every time. We kind of throw out this term community a lot on the show. I think we've said it maybe every single episode so far, at least like 50 <laughs> times. But what does that mean? Like, what does that look like for Latinos in, in this country? I mean, I don't know. Talking to Elisa made me realize growing up Latina with that community meant something pretty different for her than it did for me. You know, there was so much intentionality that her parents put into building a Latino community around her in Boston, Massachusetts, and around themselves. As a parent, I really appreciated because I consider myself an exile from uh, California and the Chicano culture. <laughs> it's just not happening out here on the East Coast so much, mm -hmm. especially here in Washington, D.C. So what they did, as you'll hear in the interview, really struck home to me, really made a difference. Yeah. For us, I, I, both of us, I think it was different. You know, when you have it a lot more accessible, it it makes the experience different. And, and that's why, to me, it makes sense that she would be so interested in using music then as a tool for breathing community into a space because she was raised with that kind of intentionality. She was raised with that desire and, and really that fire inside of her to build community wherever she went. And, and music was given to her as a, as a tool to do that. And the tiny desk was the perfect realization of that goal. That was just a beautiful way to put that. I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> what a cool conversation we've had with her. She is such a thoughtful, pensive, spiritual, amazing, emotional individual. And it was so cool to pick her brain about all of these things. You know, Alisa tried entering the Tiny Desk Contest several times, but she never won. And when we begin our conversation here, she's remembering how upset she was because she was thinking that she should just quit music altogether. I had literally just, like, been bawling my eyes out an hour before, being like, okay, 
ya, no puedo más, and I'm letting this go, and I have to take care of myself, and I like took this deep breath, went upstairs, and I had in my calendar short meeting with NPR about Top Shelf because they had featured my song and they tricked me and told me that it was a video meeting about Top Shelf. And so I like, I took a deep breath from all my crying and I went upstairs and I reviewed my notes about Milonga Accidental because I thought they're going to be asking me a few questions about the song for their Top Shelf series. And then I get on the call and that must have been like 10 minutes between this like grief process and getting this news. So yeah, whiplash is a great word. Spiritual forces. I don't know what's going on, but I still feel like I'm kind of moving somewhere between reality and dream state all the time because so much has changed so quickly. And even though this is a like a prize and an unexpected honor, I am worthy of this because my music and the stories that I tell in my music are worthy of being amplified because it just makes it possible for more people to be hopefully lifted up by songs about feeling like you don't belong anywhere <laughs> like or songs about feeling like you're in between cultures and languages and identities so it feels right and I'm I'm trying to embrace that at the same time even while all of this feels so new to me I love the way you kind of described music as like building this home for yourself that's such a beautiful visual that immediately I think evokes just the warmest fuzziest feeling one thing about building a home for yourself is your family's home and the way that you build music in that sense and then you grow up and and you start to build your own home right and so obviously stylistically your sound is is very different from your parents music that you grew up with so when was that where you started finding your own music experimenting with your own sound that differed from your parents huh There's a couple thoughts that come to mind. One is the story of how did I even begin writing and developing my own voice as an artist. And the other story that I want to talk about is also how how we've inspired each other. It's really cool to have first been taught by witnessing them performing. And then at some point along the way, I guess when I started studying music more seriously in high school... I started inspiring them and I started studying jazz and vocal improvisation. And now my parents are like incredible at vocal improvisation and they've been studying all of these different kinds of improvisation. That was just from me starting to do it. And I was not good at first, but, but I was curious about it and it it inspired them to be curious. So it really goes both ways, which is really cool mm-hmm. how me finding my own voice kind of encourages them to find their own voice. I did not think that I would be a songwriter. I didn't, I just loved performing. I loved dancing. I loved acting. I loved all those things. And I loved just learning other people's work and, and interpreting it. And when I was 15 years old, someone really close to me got super sick, super, super sick with mental illness and just felt like They were right there, but I couldn't reach them. And my heart was broken. I started writing songs because I couldn't speak to them. It was my way of coping with feeling so far away from someone I loved so much. All of the people of all of the earth, each with a piece of all this hurt. Some take it in, some give it away among. 
At first, songwriting had no stylistic rules. And I guess technically, I don't really have stylistic rules yet either because my music spans across all these different genres. But especially then, I remember writing one song that was in English, Spanish, and French <laughs> because I was studying French in school. <laughs> and, and there were no rules. So I just wrote this song that was in English, Spanish, and French. <laughs> I don't know if the grammar was right in the French part, but anyway, the point is, then it became this exercise of whatever you're grappling with, any sort of intense emotion can be fuel for a song. That's how I, I started writing, and that's how I started to find my voice totally grounded in vulnerability and like rooted in this like honesty, the things that you're afraid to say directly to somebody, maybe which is sometimes kind of scary <laughs> um, as my music becomes more known. Milonga Occidental is one of my most vulnerable songs and it seems like a good sign that, that it brought me to this point. So I'm going to try to keep being honest and vulnerable. Cuando miro afuera, cuando miro adentro, cuando miro afuera otra vez. Was that a natural thing for you? You're looking for a way to speak to this person. You're feeling like you need to express somehow. Obviously, you grew up around music, so maybe it was like, of course, I'll pick up the pen, I'll pick up the guitar, and this will happen. But was it? I think I just sat with my guitar and it started to happen. My songwriting process is always simultaneous between like playing the guitar, making up a melody and making up lyrics. And yeah, I think when when you're at a point where you don't know what to do, sometimes the creativity just starts to flow. So as this creativity started to flow, it seems to have taken shape as a bilingual entity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? You're speaking and singing Spanish and English at home, on the road. You've been doing it for a long time. It just seems like a natural yeah. progression. That that way of expressing yourself would have been not only part of your musical identity and culture, but also probably yeah. where you grew up in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. right, in, in Cambridge. Talk a little bit about those cultural trappings. I grew up with Spanish being the strict language of the house. When we were kids, it was super, super strict. Mm -hmm. Our parents wanted us to learn Spanish and to learn it well. And so they were really strict about speaking in Spanish at home. And wow. that was tough, but it actually meant that it was our first language and we didn't learn English until we went to preschool. And yeah, my parents were like, they'll figure it out. And they were right. <laughs> so we learned Spanish that way. And then we learned English just by living in Cambridge and in Boston. So my parents also wanted us to not just speak Spanish with them, but to have some sort of sense of community of other Spanish speakers in the area. And on the playground, they overheard some parents speaking in Spanish to their kids, and they started taking note of who those parents were and reaching out to them. 
and they organized a little homeschool after-school program of Spanish-speaking kids, and then it became El Grupo Bilingüe, is what it was called. We still meet to this day to hang out. Oh my Now God. we don't take class together. The kids were all, you know, in our later 20s, but we still get together as families to hang out. So they started building a community around bilingualism, around trying to keep Spanish in their children's lives. But also the Spanish that I learned as a result of that was a mix of the Spanish of everyone that I knew. So I don't have a strict vocabulary. So I have a what I call un español raro. I also don't want to feel ashamed about that. Yeah, Anna's nodding because I think you probably relate. <laughs> I have been told the exact same thing. People are like, what is your accent? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because that happens, right? When like, yes. you you know, my family's from Mexico and I didn't grow up in Mexico. I grew up in Southern California, but then also spent some time in Guatemala and in Spain, but then would spend summers in Mexico. And so you don't have the Spanish your parents have or your grandparents have because you're not growing up where they did. Totally. Exactly. You get it where you can get it, right? Yes. And I want to say that that's totally valid. Up until only a few years ago, every time that people would say that to me, ay, tu acento, que raro, like we can't place it. It's like, it sounds a little Argentine and it sounds a little Puerto Rican and then it sounds Mexican, but it also sounds Cuban. And then sometimes it sounds like Spanish. And it's just like, well, I've spoken to people with all of those accents, so... That's what happens when you grow up in the Mm -hmm. States and you just are exposed to all these different accents. But I used to think that when people said that, it meant that I didn't belong. I wasn't enough of whatever that meant. And now I just see it as this is just part of the Latin story. Just because my accent can't be placed and because my vocabulary is funky, like doesn't mean that I'm not legitimate, that I'm not real, that I'm not complete. That's something that when I'm playing music feels like it just totally fades away. We'll get back to our conversation with Elisa Amador right after this short break. I want to ask a little bit about the difference in your voice, in your singing voice, when you sing in English versus in Spanish, because I feel like we hear this more often than you would think, where a lot of musicians who sing comfortably in English and Spanish vocally sound actually pretty distinct in the two languages. And I heard that in your voice immediately, like listening to your various entries that you've made to the contest over the years. This Spanish entry really sounded like a really unique moment for you vocally. And I'm just curious if that's something that you've identified in yourself before, if that's something that you've thought about, recognized, were a little nervous to put forward. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. It just feels like, can I have this many sides to myself and still be loved (laughs) and still be accepted in society? Like, it's funny because that's the question that the song is asking. Milonga Accidental, the chorus says, when will I know how to decipher my purpose? When will I feel at home in my voice? In this voice that can sound so different when I sing in English and when I sing in Spanish, when I sing this upbeat tune and when I sing an introspective tune, when I sing about something joyful and when I sing about something devastating, like 
my voice sounds so different and it's all me. It can feel uncomfortable. It can feel like, what? I didn't know I sounded like that. And at the same time, I think it is just part of a a process of learning who you are and embracing that and accepting that. And I have heard in the past that it would behoove me as a musician to stick to one style and one sound. And And if I did that, I would be hiding parts of myself that I need to not hide. So it, it, it is an embracing. And that song was very much an unexpected surprise when I wrote it. I didn't know I could write a song that sounded like that. And it just came out. And and so now I'm just, <laughs> I'm learning that there's more and more sides to myself. And that it's good to share them. And it's good to just let myself exist. <laughs> You entered the Tiny Desk Contest four times before, right? See, si. Each time with a song that you wrote and performed in English. But this time you entered with a, a song in Spanish. It's a milonga, which is a, a form of music from Argentina, from Uruguay, from that part of the world. The song is called Milonga Accidental. Why was it an accident? <laughs> <laughs> they tend to happen when I'm trying to practice another song, and then I'm like, oh, that sounded cool. And then I <laughs> mistakes. Yeah, exactly. Mistakes. <laughs> but Milonga, I actually did sit down trying to write a song and and I was in a songwriting class over Zoom in Argentina. And we would meet over Zoom every week and we had to bring a song every week. So I was sitting down, it must have been like Wednesday, and we met on a Friday, realizing that I still hadn't written a song and I needed to figure something out. And in the previous weeks I had written several milongas and I kept ending up writing milongas without trying to, without being conscious that I was writing in a milonga rhythm. It feels like accidental milonga actually feels like a, a metaphor for embracing these accidents, these things you don't expect from yourself and being okay with all the, the multitudes that you contain and all the surprises that you contain. For me, the pandemic illuminated sides to myself that I did not know existed and it was really heartbreaking. And that song was this coping song about feeling like I was contradicting myself all the time. Like I'm getting so angry at the people that I'm stuck in that in quarantine with. And just feeling like, am I, uh, what am I? Who am I? Is this okay? And Milonga Accidental was like this accidental tune that came out and to teach me again that, that it was okay for me to keep existing. <laughs> I want to go back to something that you talked about where you were on the verge and had already, in fact, decided to give up on the music business. Yeah, yeah. It made me wonder why you were willing to walk away from something that's been such a big part of your life. What were the factors that oh. led you to that decision? Oh, man, I wish we could be holding hands right now. <laughs> because it, it's, it's such a deep thing. But... I had been working as a musician independently for 11 years, which when you're in your 20s is a while. <laughs> it's a significant chunk of your life. And I had poured everything into this job. So all of my savings, every job that I take, it was like to fund music, but also all of, all of my spiritual energy all of my brain energy, it just 
was all going into pursuing this career. And for a long time, it was really nourishing. And so even though I wasn't making a livable income from music, even though I was working full time, it was so nourishing that it didn't really matter to me. And I just kept trusting that the sustainable income would come eventually. But then the pandemic happened. And so then any hopes of a sustainable income got much harder to achieve. The part that was nourishing for me was live audiences. And that was gone. The longer that this pandemic wore on, the more drained I felt, the more I felt like I just kept giving and giving and giving, and I wasn't being nourished by the job. Being an independent musician during this pandemic is like work 10 times as hard, make a tenth of what you made before. It wasn't sustainable anymore. And I just felt, I felt so broken. I felt like a wrung out towel that didn't have anything left and people were still like squeezing, squeezing, squeezing. I was still squeezing, trying to get something more that I could give to people. And it just felt like I didn't feel safe in, in the house that, that music was building in that moment. This is not something that's like publicly talked about very much in music is how painful it is and how exhausting it is and how sometimes it can feel like really thankless work. A silver lining that I do want to bring up is that I think that there is empowerment in seeing that as unsustainable. A, it needs to be more of a conversation in this country around supporting artists, period, and seeing them as essential to our well-being and our health as a community. And B, when you're willing to let something go, it's almost like you can take better care of yourself because you're not as afraid of like, oh, will I burn this bridge? Well, did I make a good impression on that person? Mm -hmm. And all of that. Instead, you're like, well, I'm ready to let this go. So how, how can I take care of myself? How can I make this sustainable? How can I make this be good to me? Because that's the thing that especially young musicians forget and I forget is that it's my life in question. It's not just about making other people happy. <laughs> and at a certain point, no puedes más. Like, your body is done. And you have to take some sort of important step in order to get perspective, in order to be able to take care of yourself, in order to have the strength to say no to people's faces again and again in order to take care of yourself. So, whew, it's something I am still very much in the process of learning. So thanks for asking me because hopefully I'm speaking it into reality. <laughs> it's so interesting too, because you, you spoke so much about like, who am I? Am yeah. I, you know, am I kind? Am I this thing? Am I that? And being kind to yourself and figuring out those boundaries for yourself. And when you've given too much of yourself, like that's a piece of that. Yes. Puzzle, yes, you know, it's such an important piece because at the end of the day, it's just me here. <laughs> and when the show is over and I go to sleep, it's just me. And I, I need to be able to live with myself. 
and I need to be able to know what I need or else I can't keep singing and I can't keep working. So it's a really important piece. I appreciate you guys holding space for me in this conversation for that. I've talked to so many musicians over the years and a lot of them at certain points of their careers, you know, they're trying to reach their next level to move their careers forward, right? And they're struggling to keep going like yourself mm. when they can't see around the corner, when they're experiencing a lot of the same things that you experienced. Yeah. What would you say to them? I would say, I hear you. Keep listening to yourself because that's what's going to guide you. Everyone else is going to tell you what they think. <laughs> But you're, you're the one who gets to notice what feels right and what doesn't feel right and act upon that. You know, Anna, what really strikes me about that interview and Elisa's story is that she was literally minutes away from pulling the plug on her dreams of making music. I mean, we couldn't have scripted it. If we had put that scene in a movie, like her getting on the phone with Bob, like literally tears still streaming down her face, probably still kind of crying the second she hopped on that Zoom, like people wouldn't believe it. They would be like, that's not real. But it happened to her. And it's like, how incredible of a moment for an artist like that. Which was the other part of the interview that fascinated me about how she used all of that and also applied it to herself in terms of her mental health, mm -hmm. self-care, all of that stuff. It's a very, very clearly defined perspective on life and on self-worth, and it fuels her music. It was a fascinating conversation. Mm -hmm. That's what I, I was, to me, was so wonderful and refreshing about talking to her. She just strikes me as such like an old soul. She just has, I don't know, there's some people that they just are like, have that built in like years out perspective, if that makes sense. The fact that everything that's happened to her and all of these successes and failures, like the fact that in the moment she's able to look at them and be like, okay, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my community? What does this mean for other musicians? I mean, she spent so much time talking about yeah, I had this amazing moment and I had this break, but not everyone does. And like, what are we going to do about that? I think that's really special. And, and there's something really beautiful inside of her that, that she's able to do that. It's how we started this conversation. It speaks to community. What can she do for her community with the opportunities she's given? And what is community, Felix? Okay. We're still waiting on an answer. Well, let's just keep talking here on the show and figure that out as we go along. <laughs> That's going to do it for this week's edition of Alt Latino. Alt Latino is a production of NPR Music. Big ups to our amazing editor, Hazel Sills. Hazel! <laughs> our audio producer, Ron Scalzo. Ron! Our amazing production assistant, Fee O'Reilly. <laughs> and of course, the big jefe, Keith Jenkins, VP of Music and Visuals. <laughs> That's my megaphone. That's pretty good. Next time we'll bring the... <laughs> you have been listening to Felix Contreras. And Ana Maria Sayer. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.